Good morning. It's Friday, February 8th. I am here in Orlando, Florida, and Rodney is, as always, in Cape Town, but getting ready for a trip to London, where I was earlier this week, recording two very interesting interviews, which we have forthcoming. The first with Peter Campbell, the auto correspondent for the Financial Times, not to be confused with the account executive on the Mad Men show, to which we pay homage later in the program. We also speak with David Archer of Savannah Resources about the EU lithium-ion battery supply chain and the potential for Portugal. This week also saw Simon Moores in front of the U.S. Senate talking about security of supply of raw materials and the battery arms race that we have underway. Rodney, why don't we talk a little bit about you know, what we heard from Peter and Savannah and to some degree you know, Simon and this testimony and, and kind of put that all in context. Yes, we certainly are getting a definite um, steering towards how important it is for each individual major EV market and ESS market for the, the local players to secure upstream battery metals uh, for their demand. And that is definitely going to come into play with the Europeans. And more importantly, if you look at the qualification period of the major OEMs and you look at warranty requirements, etc., it's not just going to be any material that they're going to need. They're certainly not going to need very good quality uh, carbonate and hydroxide, which sets the scene for uh, some more M&A possibly or transactions in the future. What some of the major incumbents in the lithium world are telling us, for example, Albemarle and Livent, is not all lithium is created equal. We're seeing a disconnect between the demand for certain uh, quality products versus others. The OEM, they have a very clear requirement for wanting uh, high-quality um, uh, material in order to produce uh, good energy density and fast charging batteries for their clients and also those that that uh, meet the warranty. We should also comment that uh, up this week is going to be Livent's quarterly conference call or year-end, which uh, I think much awaited. The short interest in Livent has gone up very significantly over, you know, just since October, three months they've been public. And I think this is in anticipation of the spinoff, which is March 1st, there's a thought that a lot of the FMC shareholders who are going to be receiving Livent shares may not fully understand the lithium market, or they may be uh, funds that require owning a stock of, you know, greater than 5 billion market cap, and Livent is only going to be, you know, 1.8 or 2 billion market cap. So there's definitely a, a number of hedge funds, I think, who are shorting in anticipation that uh, the mutual funds that are getting their live-end shares, uh, FMC shareholders who are getting live-end shares, are, are going to sell those, which I think could create, you know, an, an opportunity. So in between February 11th, 12th, when they announced their results, and then they, uh, you know, March 1st, there could be some further, you know, volatility. But uh, I'm optimistic that Livent is going to paint, you know, a relatively optimistic picture 
of the medium to long-term future, uh, if not the very immediate future. And I'm also optimistic because lithium hydroxide prices have been relatively stable that we're not going to get some major negative earning surprise, um, which other things being equal, the, the fall in Livent's price you know, from 17 to 12 and a half since the IPO would seem to imply that Mr. Market w would think that they would have some sort of earnings miss. Getting back to this podcast, everyone I met in, in London, it's interesting, is incredibly bullish medium-term and long-term demand. China, India, what European cities are doing. And at the same time, they are despondent and extremely pessimistic. Brexit is weighing very significantly on everybody that I spoke to in London's mind. We've seen that on the demand side, it's not just driven by renewables and reduced costs of electricity and, you know, a question of the cleanness of the energy that will charge your car. Um, you've also seen government legislation uh, and I saw that, you know, come up over and over again in Robert Friedland's presentation at the benchmark conference I went to on Wednesday, is, you know, they are in most major cities in the world, the air quality is, you know, the, uh, the pollution is two times the World Health Organization's um, recommended limits. And that includes London, which I, I consider to be a lot cleaner than some of the Asian cities and certainly in, in China. So we're seeing a legislation drive support a, you know, a change in uh, the production of energy and the cleanness of the production of energy and costs. I want to apologize that our equipment is not perfect or our uh, um, understanding on how to use the equipment is not perfect. So there's some static uh, on some of the d discourse and the interviews that you're going to hear, but uh, just bear with it. It's not too distracting, but we're trying to improve the overall sound quality uh, over time as we, we get better at mastering uh, the, the, the podcast medium. Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks. We're here in London with the Financial Times correspondent, Peter Campbell, to talk about the demand side of the electric vehicle revolution. We've talked to Rodney, you've talked this uh, 2019 is to be a year where demand should be in much greater focus than just supply as it pertains to lithium and other metals. So here we're very pleased to have our first guest. Well, good morning. Uh, it's Peter Campbell here. I'm the global motor industry correspondent at the Financial Times. Uh, we hold several summits throughout the year looking at the questions of the future of automobiles and the future of mobility. We've got a big one coming up in London in May, which is two days. We've got another one in Detroit looking at the future of autos in the end of October. And we have a wider future of mobility summit in November in London. So we'd love to see you at any of those. Do you think that uh, electric vehicles are going to disrupt the auto industry? I think without question, uh, electric vehicles pose uh, a huge potential upheaval to the auto industry. 
electric vehicles are so much easier to produce and to develop. I think this is why you've seen a huge uh, proliferation of Chinese EV startups. There's something like 300 to 500 new businesses in China, which didn't exist a few years ago, all of which are focused on purely producing electric vehicles. Obviously, we've seen Tesla, we've seen others like Rimac, we've seen other companies coming up like this. Now, that may sound easy because uh, producing electric vehicle, all it requires fundamentally is a, a base and a battery and some motors and a top. It's much easier. There's far fewer moving parts than there are in internal combustion engine vehicles. But the difficulties that many of the new entrants to the market have found is that actually producing cars to uh, a high enough specification is pretty difficult. We've all followed Tesla's production problems, uh, which they've had, which they've called manufacturing hell, where they've really struggled to get many of their supply components into the factory in time. They've struggled to get many of their products to uh, the right level of quality of fit and finish uh, and sort of basics of automotive manufacturing. And so this is why when many of the uh, established OEMs are looking at the industry, they're obviously slightly nervous about the new entrants. There's no doubt that Tesla has accelerated uh, electrification plans of some of the other players. But I don't think they're worried that Tesla or, or any of the other Chinese groups are going to kill the industry simply because making cars is very hard, uh, even if it's uh, a simpler car with a, with a battery and a skateboard. It's much, much more difficult uh, than I think anyone trying to break into the industry expected. And so while you're likely to see a huge change for many of the auto companies and they're going to have to phase out internal combustion engines in the decades to come, and that has massive implications for their factories and their supply chains and the, the training of their workforce uh, and for their dealers and after-sales models as well, uh, many of them still think, feel pretty confident about the situation that they're not actually uh, going to be completely destroyed by this, but it certainly will bring disruption. It'll certainly see some of the companies struggle and possibly collapse in future uh, and will certainly reshape the landscape. And what about things like uh, BW's MEB platform? Let's talk about them sharing that with GM and possibly other smaller auto companies, would that uh, open the market up as well? So what VW has done is spend billions upon billions of euros developing the MEB platform. This is almost like an electric skateboard architecture they can fit uh, any of their sort of car bodies on top of. Now, the VW's idea is not only that they're going to use this themselves for the 10 million vehicles they make a year eventually, once all of those become electric, but they're also going to license it to other manufacturers. Now, we know VW has already struck a major alliance with Ford. That's going to see them discussing various collaborations. We think that a, a possible Ford using uh, the MEB platform is, is in that. It's very likely VW and Time could look at offering this to others. What VW ultimately wants is for its electric skateboard technology to be uh, the industry standard. Now, you may well see this uh, happening across other manufacturers. There'll be some car companies that will have spent lots of their own money developing their own electric architectures, and they certainly will not want to use VWs. And, but it could well be that you see a, almost a sort of consolidation across the industry of, uh, of electric architectures, you know, that VWs is one, and maybe Geely's is another, and maybe General Motors is another. And you see all the other companies effectively becoming purchasers of that technology. Now, we still don't know how many companies there are going to, uh, to be that are using individual different types of technology. We don't know how many uh, eventual um, industry standards there will be. VW certainly at the moment seems to be further ahead of almost anyone else in terms of deploying this technology and, and the potential that VW has given its scale um, to be able to roll MEB out 
across a huge number of nameplates and a huge number of brands and models and for it effectively to become a very, very useful way of them clawing back investment in this. And the advantage for other manufacturers of using uh, VW's MEB technology is simply that they, um, they, they cut the corners on needing to invest billions of their own money, and they can then focus uh, on spending their money on other things, you know, some product development and routes to market and new digital services. Because the car industry has always been a very capital-intensive industry, but particularly in the era of electric cars, when those cars are initially going to be less profitable for the car makers, and when they need to have huge upfront investment costs, anything the car makers can do to avoid incurring additional costs, uh, they're definitely going to jump on that opportunity. And how important do you think it is that uh, European OEMs you know, start to produce their own batteries? So this was a huge point of discussion uh, at the European auto shows in the last year or so. Many of the big European car maker chief executives have expressed serious concern about this, that the European industry needs to produce its own batteries. There are currently batteries produced in North America. There are a huge number of batteries and battery plants in Asia and particularly in China. And for Europe, the view is that for Europe, not to have a, a significant battery plant is, is simply a geopolitical risk because uh, so much of the value of an electric car is tied up within the battery. And if the cells for those, if the raw materials for those cells all come from somewhere else, then uh, you're putting your industry at the behest of another region. Now, we know that the car industry globally is uh, incredibly geopolitical. This is why we've seen it be one of the main focuses of Donald Trump's uh, uh, trade war with China. And so I think the fear uh, among some of the European car executives is that what happens one day in the future when China, for example, uh, if it has a huge dominant hold on the battery cell market, decides to turn that off uh, for European players? Now, this is obviously uh, long term in the future, uh, but it's, uh, it's considered a risk you know, by the European manufacturers. They're thinking very seriously about this. Now, we know the uh, EU, the European Union, is also thinking about this. They've talked about the need to have kind of Airbus for batteries. That's a, a cross-governmental collaboration to try and produce batteries in Europe. Uh, there are several battery plants with planning permission in Europe. Some of them are even under construction. Um, but the need for Europe to have its own source of battery cells is viewed by many of the European executives as absolutely critical. LG Chem has, I think, the, the biggest, one of the biggest plants in Poland. SK Innovation has one in Hungary, uh, in addition to, I think, CATL is uh, partnering, you know, in Germany. So th th they're being developed. One's Chinese yeah. and the others are, are, are non-Chinese, but um, so it is happening. Yeah. You know, California has a lot of major testing programs for autonomous vehicles that they allow. Does Europe have something similar? So like, like in the U.S., uh, the situation in Europe is actually incredibly fragmented. Um, in the U.S., you know that they have testing in California, there's testing in Arizona, there's testing in Florida and Michigan. But uh, in, and that's because of the, the, the state governments all having different regulations. In Europe, we have exactly the same situation. So uh, there are some countries that are trying to take the lead in this. Britain wants to have autonomous vehicles on the road by 2021, they've said. Uh, Germany is looking at this. Sweden and others are looking at this as well. Um, but again, as with as with the U.S. states, there, there is a problem of the borders between all these countries. Um, so I remember two, three years ago, I was on a truck platoon. That's a sort of semi-driverless convoy of, of 
HGVs of lorries driving uh, across Europe. And when they went from Belgium into Holland, the trucks had to move further apart because regulations stipulated they couldn't drive as closely together. So you have huge problems with the borders uh, in these uh, in these rules and these testing rules. Um, and so the problem for, for someone like Germany is if they want to have autonomous cars on the streets and they want to allow autonomous lorries, those lorries will only really work if they can drive across Europe. That's that's really a use case for heavy goods vehicles. And so if they're able to drive autonomously part of the time and then have to stop and a driver has to get in at the border and drive them on, the whole economic model of that falls down. So while there are some isolated testing areas and different countries are taking approaches, it's not until you have a, a Europe-wide, a region-wide single set of rules for autonomous vehicles that you're likely to see long-distance deployment happening. I noticed recently in the UK that uh, the subsidy policies on EVs and, and plug-in hybrids has changed. Do you see that materially affecting market demand or demand by segment? It will materially affect demand for plug-in hybrid vehicles. So the government reduced uh, the state payment for plug-in hybrid vehicles from 4500 to 3500 for some vehicles, and they excluded a whole bunch of vehicles that were previously... Uh, uh, valid for those for those payments, and so what that did was basically a whole load of plug-in hybrid vehicles suddenly became not eligible for subsidies. Now, a lot of hybrid and electric vehicles are still far more expensive than internal combustion engine vehicles for the upfront payment costs. The obvious advantage is that their running costs are, depending on how electrified they are, potentially substantially lower. Um, but the subsidy was a huge driver of activity among consumers. Uh, and this, I think, is likely to have affected particularly plug-in hybrids that are not, not as eligible, uh, but also any plug-in cars, even that are eligible, it's a, it's a significant reduction in payment. The upfront cost of the car goes up. And so I think particularly manufacturers that are exposed to, to plug-in vehicles, someone like Mitsubishi, someone like BMW, are, I think, going to be materially affected by this. What do you see as a realistic target date for the abolishment of uh, ICE vehicles in the UK? That's the million-pound question. Um, so the state of the charging industry in the UK is that it's incredibly fragmented, which leads to a lot of consumer annoyance at the moment about having to carry having to have apps or having to carry membership cards for five or six different charging clubs so that you can charge wherever you are on the move. And obviously people need to have charging at home or charging at work. And there's a lot of households in the UK, as I imagine there are in various American cities that don't have driveways, which, which reduces the amount of home charging. But putting all of that aside, the big picture is that the British government wants to abolish the sale of or phase out the sale of what they call traditional vehicles by 2040. Now, that definition of that is a moving feast, depending on the political situation, but that's currently understood to mean all vehicles that are not hybrids. So hybrids uh, will be on sale from 2040 and full electric vehicles, and it's likely that those hybrids will have to be able to drive a very significant distance using pure electric drive only, so without the internal combustion engine. Um, but the British government is expected to completely phase out the sale of all non-electric vehicles by 2050 under their own climate change targets that I believe stipulate that all transport has to be fully electrified by then. So that is likely to happen by then, and that, that is in line with what a lot of other countries are thinking as well. Now, the question, obviously, is could it happen sooner? We still don't know what 
public demand will be like for electric vehicles. I've driven uh, a very large number of electric vehicles. In driving experience, they are uh, enormously superior to internal combustion engine vehicles. Even the cheap electric vehicles like the Nissan Leaf are just a joy to drive because they're quick, they're perfectly responsive, they're silent, they're very comfortable, they're very smooth. And obviously the issue people the issue that people have right now is is the price and the choice and the range and the charging and all of those are going to come down all of those are going to change uh, simply because the amount of choice on the market is going to explode in the next two to three years as manufacturers bring out an absolute onslaught of products in the next few years we're going to see the range uh, question being addressed not only by changing consumer habits and understanding that you don't need 400 miles of range on a vehicle uh, but also by also by the widespread availability of charging infrastructure and, and much higher re recharging speeds. And you're therefore going to see a reduction in price of the vehicles as well as battery technology improves and as consumers have more choice. Now, no one has any idea what that's going to do to demand. It, you know, it could well be, broadly, consumers don't care what, what powers their vehicle. Um, they might want diesel, they might want petrol. They really are agnostic. What they want is to be able to run their car as cheaply and efficiently as possible, and they don't care what goes in it. And so the day that electric cars become better, more convenient, cheaper, better to, to use and run than combustion engine cars, then those are the cars that people will want. And we don't know when that comes, but when it comes, it could see an absolute explosion of the market. Now, that might happen before 2030. It might happen after that. It, it, it entirely depends. But when that happens, it's possible that actually the whole of the market will move in certain segments and in certain areas very quickly towards full electrification. Now, obviously, people who drive long distances, people with big SUVs who have large families, people who need to do off-roading off or anything like that, they may be slower to adopt. And so there will always be sort of pockets of holdout against electric vehicles, not because <coughs> people don't want them, but I imagine just, just because of the practicality and the use case. So you could get to 50% you know, reasonably quickly, within two decades, maybe, something like that. Um, to get to 100% might take longer just because of the, the sort of 10% holdout cases. But the real thing here is that absolutely nobody knows. Nobody has any idea what the, uh, what the change in consumer habits are going to be like, what the manufacturers will have to do to hit, you know, regulation and CO2 targets, and what the governments might mandate. You could see cities having electric-only areas, uh, and that might have a big difference. The Jaguar I-Pace, the Audi uh, e-tron, I think those were the two names when I saw you in November in Detroit that were that were coming on. So maybe you could talk a little bit about um, Jaguar, a, a, a UK brand, um, Audi, you know, and that entrance, how they're approaching the overall uh, transformation of that brand, right, which is part of the Volkswagen family. Uh, but the premium brand that, that is directly competing with Tesla. Now, the Jaguar I-Pace, uh, which I've driven and is, uh, frankly, absolutely fantastic, is very interesting, and it's different to the other two German rivals because it's built on a new platform. It's a completely new car, and, and actually it's extremely good and, and extremely impressive. Now, I haven't driven the other two. I haven't driven the Audi or the Mercedes yet, but both of those, from looking at the technical specifications and reading initial reviews of them, are in some way compromised by the fact that both those companies have simply taken an internal combustion engine platform uh, and an existing car, ripped out the engine and, and stuck in a battery. 
uh, which sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the need for a fully electric architecture. You've got some car companies that are trying to build electric cars on the same platforms as their internal combustion engine cars, uh, believing it'll help them uh, smooth the path of their manufacturing and, and make it easier to make the same cars in, in the same parts. But we don't know if that's right yet. We don't know if that's the right approach or if having a totally new architecture with totally new factory lines is the right approach. But uh, I think we'll get a much better view of this, certainly in a year's time, once we've seen a large number of products come to market and we can really test them against each other. Now, a lot of the cars have been described as, as Tesla killers um, because they go directly up against Tesla. Uh, Tesla still has not faced any real competition. Uh, in terms of in terms of scale, uh, because you know the iPace is still very limited run, the uh, the Audi and Mercedes cars are limited run, <coughs> so the t Tesla has not really faced any serious competition yet. It will be interesting in a year, year and a half's time, once there are a large number of products on the market that the car manufacturers want to produce at scale, how Tesla's sales hold up at that point. How important you, you talk about the building. Uh, uh, electric cars on the same platforms as the regular ones, but separate from that mm -hmm. is just the, the branding of the cars, right? People who are love their yeah. Ford F-150, for example, and it seems like GM is very focused on Cadillac being uh, an important, you know, so how, how important is that aspect to the rollout from the traditional car companies? Well, car brands are everything, really. I mean, for these companies, their brand is is for many of them, particularly the, you know, the premium ones, it's, it's one of their greatest assets um, because it says something about you. If you drive a Cadillac or a BMW or a Lexus, it, it says something about you. And this, I think, is why many people have found it so extraordinary that Tesla has managed to build a brand from scratch so quickly and achieved such recognition and such uh, you know, sort of consumer awareness of it, despite spending almost nothing on marketing. And that has been extraordinary. And this is what many of the, the entrants, the new entrants to the industry are going to find, actually, is that name recognition is, is very, very low for them. But I think the thing with, uh, with many of the car companies in terms of their brands is that that puts them in some ways at a disadvantage because those cars look the same. An Audi will look like an Audi. It'll have that distinctive grille at the front. Jaguars have those distinctive grills. And actually, when you're designing an electric vehicle, a grill is a really bad idea because the grills were useful in internal combustion engines because you let all the cold air flow in over the hot engine and it cools it down when the engine's at the front. But all they do on an electric vehicle is to offer drag. And drag is a killer for range. And so actually, it's really interesting when you look at the, the Tesla's design language, the Model S uh, and particularly the Model 3 as well, they've been designed specifically so that they are incredibly, incredibly aerodynamic. And this is one area where the new entrants will have an advantage over incumbents and, and their brands because Mercedes is not gonna build a car that doesn't look like a Mercedes, that doesn't have the grill at the front. And that means that its cars will always be slightly less aerodynamic than they could be. So the first car manufacturer to say that they're going to completely redesign their vehicles for electric in order to get them uh, as aerodynamic as possible will be taking a big gamble with their brand and with their brand identity because even people who aren't car fans can see a Mercedes driving down a street and they know it's a Mercedes. Is there a chance that we're going to see a, a major brand name casualty in the shift to EVs and a move away from <coughs> focus being on engine and transmission to more electronics and functionality? Yes.
but don't ask me which one. I think there's a. <laughs> I think the. I think the. I think the issue is that all the car companies right now are facing disruption from so many different angles. There's the rise of electric vehicles that you know disrupts their supply chain, disrupts their factories. There's the potential rise of autonomous vehicles in the future. There's the different ways that people buy and own and use cars, and are we going to use move, move towards a, a usership model in major cities compared to an ownership model? Does that make the car companies hardware providers to ride-hailing fleets rather than having a direct consumer relationship? There are lots and lots of changes that are coming to the industry, and all of the car makers right now are taking bets on how that will work out. Now, there's no playbook. No one knows how these things are going to work out. No industry has gone through this level of transformation before. You might see it, you know, parallels with the smartphone industry or other industries that have undergone massive and rapid digitalization. But in terms of the number of things that are changing in the car industry at the same time, it, it's quite profound. And you're seeing really radically different approaches to this from some companies. You've got the kind of General Motors and Daimlers who believe they want to do everything. They want to own the ecosystem. They want to run the ride-hailing fleets. They want to offer the software stack. They want to make the cars. They want to do the services inside. Uh, and they believe that is the way they will win. And then you've got other companies, you know, Fiat Chryslers, Volvos, various others, who effectively are happy to buy the black box. They're happy to, to let someone else develop a lot of the technology. And when it's ready, they'll simply buy it and stick it on. Uh, or they're ready to do hardware deals. You know, they, you know, Chrysler sold a whole bunch of cars to Waymo. Uh, Volvo is selling a whole bunch of cars to Uber for use in their fleets. Volvo is even explicit that it wants to be the hardware provider of choice for the ride-hailing autonomous industry. And, and that approach at the moment uh, makes them look technologically slower than someone like General Motors or Daimler. But we don't know how the world's going to pan out. We don't know if that's the that's going to be the approach that ultimately will win. In which case, the people who backed the other technology, the other the other way of doing things, will end up being wrong and end up paying the price of that. Everyone always points back to the great battle between VHS and Betamax, um, when uh, you know when when Betamax was technically a superior technology, but ultimately VHS won out. I think we're at that position in the industry right now. Um, but don't ask me to pick which side is VHS and which side is Betamax. Just from the a U.S. point of view, I've noticed uh, uh, significant investments in technology, whether it be Cruise, Maven, Waymo, whereas you see Chinese companies and maybe some Europeans more focused on securing supply of raw materials. A separate question, this whole Yellow Jackets phenomenon and the pushback against gas taxes. And the increasing power and influence of city and metropolitan authorities. So uh, London is talking about having areas of the city where you may only be able to drive electric vehicles in future. Some of the German cities are talking about streets where you can no longer drive older diesel vehicles. None of these bodies are operating within the timeline set out by national governments for trying to uh, change the fuel mix. And so they're able to act much faster. And it was notable two years ago, I think, in Frankfurt at the Frankfurt Motor Show when uh, in the recent previous six months, all of the, a lot of European cities had started talking about diesel bans. This had spooked the industry because it suddenly led to a massive decline in diesel sales because people were worried about the direction of travel. 
and they thought they wouldn't be able to, they might buy a diesel vehicle today, but they couldn't drive it in, in six months' time or a year's time because their local mayor might ban it. And so I think you will see definitely a pushback uh, from, from rural areas who feel uh, left behind by some of the rules, who feel marginalised by some of the rules, particularly if politicians make them drive uh, more environmentally friendly eco-hybrid electric cars uh, when they feel that that doesn't serve their need. And so it's possible that you will see a sort of two-tier system developing where cities tend to have one type of vehicle and rural areas tend to have another and I think this is, I think this is a, a, a European phenomenon, but I think it goes wider than that as well. I think you'll see it elsewhere. You'll see a real pushback by people who still want to drive their F-150s. Great. And the um, U.S. Uh, focus on autonomous, cruise, Maven, and, yeah. and like. So when you're looking at the global car industry, this was one of the greatest pieces of advice that someone gave me when I joined this industry, is to view the car makers uh, as an extension almost of their state that they're based in. So the, you view the Americans as America, and you view the Germans as German, and you view the French and French and, and, and Japanese and so forth. And it actually helps explain a huge amount of what goes on in the car industry. You know, there's a reason that um, the Americans are considered to be in some ways behind on electric vehicles, because you look at their biggest markets you know Ford's biggest market is the US Fiat Chrysler's biggest market is the US and the US is enormously lax compared to Europe or China on electric vehicles General Motors is much further ahead and that's because China is one of its biggest markets it's you know, General Motors has has, the, has North America and China as its two biggest markets VW is much further ahead than a lot of the other Europeans in electric vehicles simply because uh, China is one of its biggest markets and Europe is talking about CO2 rules that will mean that uh, car companies have to sell far more electric vehicles. That's why you're seeing a lot of the Japanese and Koreans focusing on fuel cells. Partly, I mean, obviously they believe in that technology as well. Uh, partly in Japan, it's a government-led thing. And also there's a the view about China as well. China is going for battery electric vehicles. Japan and Korea have leadership in fuel cell technology. That gives them almost a sort of geopolitical buffer. So I think you can never separate the car industry properly from the politics and the geopolitics of the nations they're in and around. And when you look at their technological investments, you can tend to, you can tend to see that. You mentioned uh, China uh, and how GM and VW are big in China and therefore they're the most advanced. There's some thought that China will succeed in its ambition to leapfrog um, the world in <coughs> internal combustion engine cars and be the leaders in EVs. So similar to the Japanese, which we ignored in 1970s and the early 80s when their cars you know, showed up in, uh, on the streets of America, you know, and, and now we're driving Korean cars you know, as much as we're driving Japanese cars, uh, th there isn't really a, like a Chinese brand, right? A consumer brands. Talk about that with a you know five, ten, fifteen year time frame, in the context of what is increasingly a, this us and them, um, China versus non-China world. China has set itself very ambitious. What they call new energy vehicle targets. That's electric car targets, and chi the Chinese government has also. Uh, effectively allowed many of its, its state-owned or, or regionally-owned uh, car companies to become very large and very successful and to partner 
uh, with international car makers. Now, any international car maker until recently operating in China had to have a joint venture with a local partner. That allows the partner to get sight of some of the technology to help improve their own vehicles. Chinese-built vehicles have massively improved in quality over the last few years to the state where they are now approaching, you know, they're not there yet, but they're approaching the standard of internationally built vehicles. Definitely there is an awareness among all of the international car makers that China is getting bigger and bigger and more powerful, that it is taking a leadership position or trying to take a leadership position in electric vehicles, that when the Chinese government puts its mind to something, uh, it, it tends to do pretty well at it. There was also the big macro issue about China. China has enjoyed years and years and years of growth. There are questions whether that's coming to an end. You know, we all believed that, that Japan years ago would, would continue to grow uninterrupted, and that didn't happen. And so there were questions whether China can uh, continue to resource development of electric vehicles, can really pursue a sort of global domination of battery cars. But there is definitely an awareness that there are companies within China that are big and that have effectively the tacit backing of the government. If you look at someone like Geely, um, they've made a huge number of acquisitions. They obviously bought Volvo. More recently, they bought Lotus uh, and their Malaysian owners, Proton. Um, they took a stake in Volvo trucks. They've taken a big stake in Daimler. And if you look at the times when Geely made some of those acquisitions, it was at the time when many of the Chinese companies were being prevented from making acquisitions abroad. But at the same time, Geely was spending more than about $13 billion, I think it was, on a number of international acquisitions and stake-building exercises. That shows at least that Geely has, in some way, the permission of the Chinese government to do these things. There is a view that um, the Chinese government has therefore almost given its blessing uh, to Geely to go out and to, uh, to acquire companies to build expertise. And these guys have a very, very long-term view. Uh, we still don't know um, what their plans are. We still don't know when China itself will look to export Chinese electric vehicles elsewhere, but we're starting to see it. Uh, you know, I was at uh, another motor show. We were at Detroit Motor Show. Uh, there was a Chinese company there a few weeks ago looking at exporting to the U.S. There's a large number of Chinese companies that are looking in the next two to three years at coming to the U.S. market. Uh, Geely has a, a new brand called Lincoln Co., which is part run by Volvo. Um, that is also looking at manufacturing vehicles in Europe to sell to European consumers. So there's a trickle of it. Uh, I, I don't know if we're going to see the same sort of onslaught that we saw the Japanese car makers take to North America and to Europe and the Koreans take to North America in the last few years. But I think if China put its mind to it, they certainly could do it in several years' time. What you're more likely to see is is expansion to the other markets around China, Southeast Asia, and other places around there. You're likely to see them look to those markets initially, I think partly because barriers in Europe and America, uh, not least political barriers, are substantially higher. Something that's uh, sort of closer to Howard and, and my heart is um, the question of whether companies like BW and others have done enough to uh, secure the upstream chemicals, you know, to to supply batteries in time. So there's a number of car manufacturers looking at trying to secure raw materials for electric batteries. VW and Daimler, I'd say, are probably regarded as furthest ahead in that. I think between them, they're pledged to spend something like 70 billion trying to buy and secure uh, raw materials. Now, this is obviously 
something that the car companies never normally uh, used to do. They they would they would have a whole network of suppliers who would make parts for them. Many of the car companies would manufacture their own engines, but the bits that went in those engines often were made by tier one, two, three suppliers. And so for the car companies suddenly having to think about raw materials, suddenly having to think about doing deals to secure those commodities years and years ahead of time uh, is a change in the industry at a time when we're going to see a huge squeeze because everyone will want to build electric cars at about the same time. We still don't know what the adoption curve for electric vehicles will look like, but we know it's going to go up. And we know there will come a point where uh, demand explodes and the industry needs to ramp up output exponentially. And at that point, I expect there will probably be a, a squeeze on raw materials, depending on how the supply side of the equation has worked itself out at that point. We know that China is doing a lot to secure uh, a lot of the raw materials to try and give themselves uh, an advantage over others in this. China strategically has looked at the industry and decided almost to, to bypass internal combustion engine technology as an area of expertise and try and uh, try and secure as its national interest uh, a leadership position in electric vehicle technology and some of the materials that go into that. So it's likely there will be a lot of companies scrabbling uh, for these materials in the years and decades to come. Yes, a scramble for raw materials in which the United States is a bystander, according to Simon Moores of Benchmark Minerals. Great testimony to Senator Murkowski and Senator Manchin at the U.S. Senate today, alongside Bloomberg New Energy Finance and some others. Europe has a similar issue in that they are currently reliant, as the United States is, on importing lithium, but uh, like the United States, also has a number of promising projects one of which uh, I had a chance to visit last summer, Savannah Resources. And while in London, I took the opportunity to catch up with CEO David Archer to talk about that project. Rodney will visit as well in a couple of weeks' time. Look forward in future to discussing the Savannah project in more detail. But given the focus of this podcast on demand, cars, and Europe in particular, I asked David a few questions about what he sees in the European dynamic and Portugal's potential place in the supply chain for the very important European car industry. I think the European Union uh, really does see uh, the strategic importance of ensuring that the, uh, the, the, the continuing viability and profitability of the, uh, the European car industry. And um, now that there's um, effectively an enormous sort of um, re-engineering re exercise going on uh, with uh, the European sort of car industry, that the European government wants to make sure that um, the uh, sort of competitive advantage that uh, the European manufacturers have enjoyed will continue. Uh, the European government, I think, is very sort of concerned about the um, competitive challenge um, out of out of uh, out of China. Uh, China now is the, uh, the the globally leading producer of electric vehicles. So uh, there, there's a very very serious challenge uh, to the European industry, and of course, uh, car manufacturing is absolutely vital to the economy of uh, of Germany. Germany is the economic lo uh, locomotive uh, for Europe. Um, so the, the European 
European government is very concerned to uh, ensure that the, the right uh, policy parameters are in place uh, to ensure the uh, uh, prosperity and longevity of uh, the European uh, uh, vehicle industry, which is uh, morphing to being uh, an electric vehicle industry at the moment, as we're seeing, you know, with the very large investments, for example, uh, by uh, by VW, uh, which we see to be very encouraging. We have a choice. This industry has a choice, right? As it develops, um, how is it going to develop? You're likely to see, if you look at zinc, copper, lead, you know, there are mines and smelters all around the world, various geographies, and, and it makes sense to me that that's how the lithium market develops. You know, you can go from mine to chemical to cathode and humicores here, I think, with cathode manufacturing as well, yeah. to um, battery to car without ever having to leave the continent. I mean, that is, um, to the extent you're talking about European policymakers very keen on this, that would seem to me a, a logical outcome. The European government is very sort of conscious of its, uh, the vulnerability, you know, particularly supply line vulnerability, and want to make sure that uh, Europe you know, really uh, wholly uh, encompasses um, every element in that, uh, in that value chain, because that will be you know, of strategic advantage, I think. One of the things we are seeing is um, you know, the commitment of Europe to, um, uh, to uh, meeting its um, uh, global uh, climate change uh, mandates and uh, and requirements, and they're very very strict and very heavy. Um, you know, the, the 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 task in front of every country in the world is really utterly enormous. Um, we want to get to a, a net uh, greenhouse gas uh, emission level of net zero by 2050, and that's going to require a very sort of wholesale change in uh, in the way um, our economy operates and. You know, utilising existing technologies that are well understood, such as um, uh, lithium batteries and electric vehicles, is going to be sort of a very sort of key way on delivering uh, to some of those uh, to some of those targets. My interactions here just in three days. The demand side, it's not just China, it's not just India and all the pollution there, it's just, it, it's European cities, they're just, they, they get it. I think the interesting thing is that really sort of China has developed, a, if, if you like, a, an axis, um, a north-south axis, Australian production of uh, spodumene, um, processing of it in China and, and to a certain extent consumption in China in terms of the, uh, the, the, the electric vehicle uh, industry. I think really what Europe wants to do is sort of compress that axis into a, a, an axis that holds sort of sits within the, the borders of Europe, uh, a west-east access, uh, western production, eastern consumption. You've got a lot of the, the battery plants now being developed, sort of Pol uh, Poland, uh, Hungary um, and, uh, and Germany. So, you know, we're sort of seeing all of this sort of coalescing. The European Commission, from a policy perspective, you know, putting its shoulder to the wheel and uh, looking to sort of broadly sort of support the development of um, the lithium value chain in, in Europe. Um, there are a number of uh, European um, investment banks and, and banking institutions which I think are, are being sort of broadly encouraged to encourage uh, the development of uh, this lithium value chain. I want to talk a little bit about Portugal because uh, I remember just a few years ago, uh, we're here, it's now China, the year of the pig, and uh, the pigs are uh, kind of Portugal, Ireland, uh, Greece, and, and Spain, but uh, Portugal has actually turned around, you know, quite a bit. You know, it has a, a reasonable you know, auto OEMs, there is uh, some manufacturing, uh, some of the car companies there, even though they 
the brands are mostly German or French or the UK, but there are some there. You know, this northern part of Portugal, very well endowed in terms of um, these lithium-bearing uh, pegmatites, and in fact, uh, there's going to be a government tender uh, later this year which will open up some of this ground, and I think uh, the northern part of Portugal will really become you know, a, a real sort of point of focus, um, you know, particularly for European industry, um, who are looking to sort of build out the lithium value chain, but also I think it will be sort of a, a prime point uh, for um, investment as well by European industry and European investors. Tender not just for mining, but also potentially for downstream conversion. And the, the Portuguese government is very sort of uh, interested in, in sort of encouraging the front end of the value chain, at least, uh, both uh, mining concentration and refining uh, produce lithium salts. So, um, you know, we think, and I think the Portuguese government agrees, that um, uh, Portugal you know, could provide a sort of a brilliant platform, you know, that, that sort of, if you like, the lithium locomotive uh, to sort of uh, uh, bring along uh, the development of the lithium value chain in Europe. We've got a very supportive uh, national government um, in Portugal uh, behind uh, the idea of the development of uh, an integrated lithium industry in the country. And the Portuguese government also sees it as important as to develop um, you know, true industrial type um, activity. And uh, lithium appears to be a, uh, an industry area where Portugal really has a, has a natural advantage, um, both because of its uh, resources, but also because um, of the um, employment opportunities that actually sort of provides uh, for Portuguese, and I suppose as well uh, the fact that Portugal really is on the on the w on the western side of Europe, and, and we also think that uh, Portugal could be a uh, processing hub, if you like, for the uh, for uh, spodumene developments on the uh, on the Atlantic uh, Rim, you know, whether it be in uh, South America, North America, or or West Africa, and of course um, Europe itself. So um, it could be the um, the import hub, if you like, uh, for the development of a whole uh, lithium industry in, in Europe. Lithium-ion rocks, lithium-ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.